You can go ahead and turn to the book of James, chapter 1. Thomas Manton said in his introduction to his exposition of James, he says, we are all apt to divorce comfort from duty and to content ourselves with a barren, unfruitful knowledge of Jesus Christ. As if all he required of the world were only a few naked, cold, and inactive apprehensions of his merit. And all things were so done for us that nothing remained to be done by us. This is the wretched conceit of many in the present age, and therefore either they abuse the sweetness of grace to looseness, or abuse the power of it to laziness. Christ's merit and the Spirit's efficacy are the commonplaces from whence they draw all the defenses and excuses of their own wantonness and idleness. It is true that God hath opened an an excellent treasure in the church to defray the debts of humble sinners and to bear the expenses of the saints to heaven. But there is nothing allowed to wanton prodigals who spend freely and sin lavishly upon the mere account of the riches of grace. He continues later on, I grant that closing with Christ is an excellent duty and of the highest importance in religion. But in Christ, there are no dead and sapless branches. Faith is not an idle grace. Wherever it is, it fructifieth or brings fruit of good works. My friends, this is not just a sermon on James 1, 1 through 11. It is also a sermon that introduces the book of James. The book of James is is operating under the assumption that those he is writing to are Christians and have the spirit of the living God taking up residence in them, and that they struggle with idleness. We all do, don't we? While it is so comforting to read about the blessings of grace we have received in Christ, like in the book of Ephesians, and looking at the book of Romans to see how the first 12 chapters are about doctrine and the final four are about practice, It's very easy to get lost in the idea that Christianity is more doctrinal than it is practical. And yes, while there is a deep and rich doctrine we must know, if we are to see the real God of the Bible and who He truly is, none of those things matter if it does not result in practice. We must remember that those who are in Christ must be producing some fruit, even if it is as small as the beginning bud, there must be growth. This kind of urgency to the Christian should be what continues to drive us to holiness and purity as we seek to follow God and live at peace in his church. Friends, the message of James is Faith without works is dead. Dead faith. Now we will deal with this more later on in the sermon series of this book, but what James is not saying is that it takes our works to be justified, but that our works and faith are so closely related that if someone has faith but does not have works to back up their faith, their faith is dead. And it does not prove to bring any fruit. Paul Washer has said this in one of his sermons. The world will tell you that you can't read a book by its cover. Jesus says you can. 
The Christian should be the one who has such a rich desire for the works of the Lord that the world looks on, and though they really don't know why we do it, they know something has to be different. But friends, when someone takes notice, we must always link our works back to our faith in Jesus Christ. Because it is only then that the works have any meaning. Though it is true that faith without works is dead faith, it is also true that works without faith is dead works. Though you do nice things, though you say nice things, they will not save. We will often fall on one side of the fence or the other, depending on, depending so much on the grace of God that there is no need to do anything because Jesus has done it all. Or we fall on the other side where we do so many good things for people that we begin to define our religion simply by doing good things. And so we lose the reason, we lose the power, we lose the essence of religion. If we have enough faith that we could metaphorically build a mountain out of our faith, if it has no works to prove that faith, it is meaningless faith. And if we do so many good things for others, that we end up heaping up our good works in some way, hoping to please God that all of our works we do for him might please him and his people, those works will be burned up on the day of judgment because they had no faith to secure them. Friends, the book of James is a heavy book with a high calling. And like Blake mentioned a minute ago, it starts off strong. So as a way of context, as we begin to dive into the book of James, not just this passage we're in, but the whole of James, I want to start off with a few contextual notes. First, I want to mention the, the canonicity of James. This may bring you no interest, but I think this is necessary for us. James is not addressed to a single church. If you read the first verse, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So it's not written to a specific church. It's written to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Because it wasn't written to a specific church, many have had doubts about whether this book is actually a part of the canon or not. In fact, the struggle with this book is, is such that the eastern and western parts of the church did not recognize it as canonical until the 4th century. Now, the book was used by Christians, ancient Christians before that, in the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd centuries, as being God's word. They used it as God's word, though it was not officially accepted until the 4th century. The next thing I'd like to mention is the author, the author of this book. Acts 1.13 gives us this striking reality that James was a common name in Israel. It was common. There were a lot of people named James. Acts 1.13 says, And when they had entered into the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James, the first, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. There's a lot of Jameses. In one verse, we see three of them. And the funny thing is, is that historically, the James that wrote this book is none of them. None of those previous three. So we have four Jameses. Historically, the, the view is that, the, that James, the half-brother of our Lord, was the one who penned this book under the inspiration of the Spirit. So we have those three. We have those two disciples. Then we have one that is the father of another disciple. But friends, ultimately, here's the thing. It's not a first-tier issue. It's not a, it's not a big deal. Ultimately, we have to ask the question, is it truth? Does it line up with the rest of Scripture? And if it does, then it can be used for our benefit. And I believe, and as do we all, if we're here and you believe in the Scriptures and the infallibility of them, that we are about to study an infallible book, an inerrant book. 
Now, the original audience is kind of interesting. We don't really know who they are. It's kind of um, unclear, and the book doesn't give us a whole lot of clarity. But from the beginning in verse 1, we see that whoever these people are, they're spread out. They're spread out all, all over the place, away from their homeland. And I believe this is the passage literally stating that the recipients of this letter are experiencing the aftermath of something that has happened, causing them to disperse all over the place. So whether it was persecution or whether it was something else that caused them to remove themselves from a place that they were, they would call their homeland, the scripture says they were dispersed. Friends, it is, it is believed, and I would agree, that they are dispersed all over the place because of persecution. They're dispersed all over the place because persecution came upon the early disciples of the church, the early apostles and the early Christians. And when this came upon them, they spread out. But the beautiful part about it, if you go and read Acts, is that in earlier persecutions and in all persecutions, when the Lord brought persecution upon his church, or when persecution came upon his church, they spread out, and guess what went with them? Guess what went in their mouths? The gospel. That is how God built his church. So persecution comes, the people of God disperse, and more churches are planted as a result. So we have James writing to these people who are in the dispersion. And it was written roughly around AD 62, uh, which is believed, but we don't really know. And another question is, was it written to Jews or was it, was it written to the church? Because he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And we know who the 12 tribes are. They're the Jews. So a lot of people, many people, struggle with, with giving, this, um, giving this direction towards the church. And they think it's more direction or written towards just Jews. But I will say, early in the church and in other Christian writings it was commonplace to use terms that referred previously to Jews and use those terms to refer to God's church, to the Christians. So my belief, friends, is that we are reading a book that was originally written to Christians who were dispersed because of persecution, and now they are in all over, all over the place. Churches are planted the Lord has dispersed them, the churches have been planted, and now James is writing a letter to people who are in persecution, who are outside where they're originally from, their homeland, and now they are receiving this letter. If you read this book in conjunction to 1 Peter 1.1, you find that it is the other place that refers to a dispersion. And we know that if you go to 1 Peter, it's written to people who are experiencing trials and afflictions. So it would make sense that the reason that these people are spread abroad is because of affliction, because of persecution that was brought upon the church. Also, this first section of James is, is clearly about trials. And if you flip over to the end of the book, you'll find that chapter 5, verse 7 through 12, brings up this same idea of trials. And James continues to speak in, to the audience about being patient in trials. And as Blake mentioned a minute ago, the prayer at the end is to pray for those who are suffering. So friends, this book is quite literally book-ended with suffering. This book that we're about to deal with is heavy and deep, and at times it can be very rough. But what we'll find is that though those coals that we seem to be raked over, we find that it is God's grace that he is melting away the dross. In chapter 5, verse 4 through 6, we see that wealthy landowners are taking advantage of these people. The text says about rich people and showing partiality to them because they are rich, that they are the ones who are dragging you into court, he says in chapter 2, verse 6. In the following verse, it says that they're also having their faith scorned by these people in chapter 2, verse 7. While experiencing these trials, they're also encouraged to remain above reproach in the midst of these trials. 
Chapter 4, verse 4 states clearly, friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Chapter 1, verse 27 says that the part of a pure and undefiled religion is to keep oneself unstained from the world. This letter goes on to show that this kind of pollution and staining that the world can bring upon his church comes in a variety of forms. It can look like being partial or valuing the rich and not the poor in chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. It can also manifest itself in uncontrolled, critical speech. Friends, if you've struggled with a critical tongue recently, look out. It's coming. That is found in chapter 3, verse 9 through 12, chapter 4, verse 11 through 12, and chapter 5, verse 9. This pollution can also be seen when people seek the wisdom of the world, which is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. That's in chapter 3, verse 15. The staining of the world can reveal itself in having violent quarrels, chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. It can cause arrogance in the hearts of God's people, chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. And very fundamentally, it can manifest itself in double-mindedness, having no commitment, having no faith and trust in God's plan. This, in the end, will cause us to struggle obeying God because there is a struggle to believe what God says. This puts into perspective when James says in chapter 2, verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This statement falls in the section talking about how faith without works is dead. As if to say, friends, believing is what demons do. Believing and obeying is what we're supposed to do. That's what distinguishes Christians from the world. How we obey God. How we live for Him. James is calling believers to repent. To repent from compromising their faith and to stand firm. Understanding what God is doing in the midst of trials. And that those who are struggling should be prayed for. So that the sinner who is wandering would be brought back from his wandering. To put it simply, friends... Though you are in a literal exile, though these Israelites, or whether this, this, this church is in a literal exile, from being dispersed from their homeland, do not let that cause you to enter into a spiritual exile. Though you are in physical wilderness, do not enter into a spiritual one as well. The letter of James is extremely practical, extremely practical. And because of that, it has a strong imperative nature to it. If you're a Christian, friends, and you have the Holy Spirit of God taking up residence in your soul, and you are sensitive to the Spirit's workings there, when you read James, you will be convicted and humbled. You will be convicted and humbled. I would encourage you, on your own time, read it. Read it, read it in one sitting. Verse 1 all the way to the end of chapter 5. Now, if you've read this text, you will know that it has to do with trials. So to open up, I would like to give a few comments about what qualifies a trial in the life of a believer. Now, I don't want to dismiss trials that are true, and I can't cover them all. But Blake and I talked about this on Friday... And I think it was kind of interesting. But we need to distinguish between going down Rogers Avenue at lunchtime on a weekday and experiencing persecution for believing in Jesus Christ. One of them is real, difficult persecution for the sake of our Savior. And the other is just impatience. So we need to distinguish when the light doesn't turn green and it turns red instead... It's not persecution. It's just impatience. 
And while going down Rogers Avenue is trying, believe me, I have been there. And I know how trying it is. I have a lot of unsanctified patience or impatience. We need to determine the reason for our persecution. Is our struggle going down Rogers Avenue because of our love for Jesus? Or is it just because we are impatient? Now, friends, there needs to be another qualifier to our trials. And that is the severity of our trial. And this is where sickness and pain and loss comes in. And it seems as like you're not, you're not suffering for the Lord. You're not suffering for your faith. It seems like it's just happening at random. And it just happens, and the hammer falls, and the iron shatters. Sparks fly, and you're in the furnace. And there it is. These are also trials. The severity of our trials is what we need to bring to mind. When something happens in our life that brings deep anguish to our souls, and such that it is immediately, it immediately summons multiple questions in our minds. Why, God? Why did you do this? It's the difference between falling down on the sidewalk and scraping our knee and getting the diagnosis we didn't want to hear. Or they're on opposite sides of the spectrum. One is something you'll get over and the others are deep and hurtful and painful. The severity of our trials will bring legitimacy to it. So throughout the duration of this sermon, the way I'm going to use that word, trial, testing, will be in that severe way. It won't be scraping your knee or Rogers Avenue. Either we have something severe going on that will require the grace of God, or we are being slandered or persecuting for the name of Christ. So open your Bibles to James. We're going to dive in now. James chapter 1. We're going to read verse 1 through verse 11. The scripture says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And before we dive into this, I'd like to share a few things about trials and testing in general. Just because God uses evil for good does not mean that evil is good. Just because God uses evil for good doesn't mean that evil is good. Beloved, we serve a supremely sovereign God. And He is the one who owns the cattle on the thousand hills. He not only governs all the affairs of His world, but He also commands and directs the plans of man's hearts. And friends, the Bible is packed with places that show how God uses the sting of death to refine His people. 
The God we serve is so sovereign that he can take this unsanctified, unruly, demonic seed of sin and make sweet salvation out of repulsiveness. But what we need to realize is that God doesn't create evil, friends. And thus, evil is never good. In the next sermon in this series, we'll go over chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. It says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow, variation or shadow, due to change. We know that good gifts come from God and evil. Though it doesn't originate in God, because he is good, is still used by God for good purposes. So beloved, if you're in a time of mourning, whether it's over a loved one, the loss of a loved one, or over the difficulty of a situation at your work or in your house, or of the difference in political views, or of the difference in the opinion over COVID-19, There is a time to mourn. There is a time to allow yourself to mourn. Know that if you're in a season of mourning, mourn well. But know that joy should come from it. The next thing I would like to mention is this. Just because we are encouraged here to have joy in our trials doesn't imply that trials are joyous. Just because we're encouraged to have joy in our trials does not imply that trials are joyous in themselves. Dear saints, do you feel grieved in your spirit today? Are you just simply having a rough week? Or perhaps you're experiencing extreme trials. Maybe you're getting ridiculed for your faith. You're sharing the gospel and people are literally dragging your name through the mud. Maybe you're tempted to shove the pain off, to shove it into the closet in your mind that nobody opens. Maybe you're saying, you can come into my living room, but you can't come into my kitchen. Or you can come into my house, but and even my kitchen, but don't go to that room. That's where the mess is. We do this, don't we? Friend, this is a lie from Satan himself. Satan will do whatever he can to rob you of your joy. Satan will do whatever he can to rob you of your joy. When God brings trials into your life, it is an occasion that God desires to bring you joy. And every time we shove off our trials, because we do not want to deal with them, we are actually robbing ourselves of potential joy in Christ. This does not mean that we are to love trials themselves. But the point of this passage is that we should desire the outcome. We should desire the outcome. Don't be convinced to the empty understanding that Christians are always supposed to be happy people. Historically, Christians are among the most tried people and persecuted people of all time. Be comforted that true spirit-filled Christians often struggle with testing in their lives. In fact, our Savior promised we would have them. Giving a brief overview of verse 1, I want to now start in verse 2. Verse 2 reads, through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God desires that his people have a completeness or a purity to them. First thing I want to share with you is this, that God desires spiritual wholeness in his people. God desires spiritual wholeness. When the passage says, count it all joy, the word all here is a word that intensifies something. 
It's a word that is an intensifier in the Greek. And because you use the word all, it usually, when you use the word all, it usually intensifies a word that's plural. Because the word all just makes sense that it would be used with a word that's plural. But this text isn't, isn't emphasizing the word trials. The trials is plural. It's not emphasizing the word trials, but it's emphasizing the word joy. It says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So the text doesn't read, in all your trials have joy. But instead, in your various trials, count it all joy. The idea here is not a dull, emotionless joy, but a full, vibrant joy that will not be discouraged depending on the circumstance. See, beloved, one of the problems we face is that we so easily base our joy upon our circumstance. We so easily plant our comforts on our condition. Friends, when we do this, we are building our house on the sand. It will not hold. When trials come our way and we find that the foundation of our comforts crumble, we often seek first to change our condition. We seek often first to change our circumstance. I need to leave this job. I need to move on and get out of this place. I need to remove myself from this situation for a time. I wish I could just go to an island and just hang out there by myself for a little while and just clear my head. We do this. And it is discouraging when we do this. But don't be brought to despair. Because Paul himself prayed in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Now notice this, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now what does Paul do here? He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. What is Paul doing? Seeking to change the condition. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul says after that, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul shows us an example here of not basing his comforts on his condition, but instead basing his condition upon where he finds comfort. See, beloved, God, Paul, learned the difficult lesson of building his joy on the rock and not the sand. This, friends, is the permanence of God-given joy. It's a joy that lasts. It is a joy that builds itself upon something that doesn't move, God himself. It is where we stop looking down at our condition and defining our lives through the lens of our circumstances. But it is by seeking the comfort in the one who can give us joy no matter our circumstance. It's not basing our happiness on something that can change, but upon the changeless nature of our gracious God. That is why the scripture says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. Not simply to have all joy. This establishes the idea that this joy cannot be found in us. It is a joy that exceeds understanding and doesn't seek to be understandable to the world. It's a joy that God gives to his people. This word in the Greek is used in other places. and It's used in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. It's a product of the Spirit of God. This kind of God-given, Spirit-fueled 
joy is available to those who have the Spirit of God residing in them. But the question is this, friends. Why? Why should I count my trials as joy? Does God know that trials hurt? The reason we should count them as joy is found in verse 3 and 4. Verse 3 and 4 say, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, it's humorous how sarcastic James is. If you want to find out, just read the book. It's very humorous. But James treats this as a matter of fact, as if the people of God know that testing brings steadfastness. He says, for you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See, this is why we must know that our trials produce something. Trials give us the why. Steadfastness gives us the why. James is giving us a trail of thought here. He's saying that when trials or testing come into our lives without invitation, it just shows up. Trials produce steadfastness. If you were to go back to verse 1, it says when you meet trials of various kinds, the Greek word actually means when you fall into trials. When you're walking along the road and there it is, pothole, and you just fall in. So the goal James gives is steadfastness. And the goal of steadfastness is spiritual completeness that we see at the end of verse 4. And we are to have joy because we desire what God desires in us. We are to have joy because we desire what God desires in us. Friends, this is the life of our Savior Jesus. What does our Savior say when he teaches the disciples to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? What does Jesus say in the garden before his betrayal and crucifixion? Not my will, but yours be done, though he sweat drops of blood. Remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4? It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now catch this, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Beloved, this idea given here in Ephesians 1 is that the very reason God chooses is that we might be holy and blameless in Christ course there are many more reasons but that's the one Ephesians gives it means that when trials come into our life it is a summon from the father saying come to me come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest it is our God saying depend upon me lean on me God the Father draws us near, makes us more like His beloved Son through trials. Thomas Watson said it this way, God's rod is a pencil to draw Christ's image more lively upon us. Watson also says afflictions are the medicine that God uses to carry off our spiritual diseases. They cure the timpani of pride, the fever of lust, the dropsy of covetousness. Dear saints, every stem of wheat has chaff with it. It wasn't until Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast into the furnace that the angel of the Lord appeared in the furnace with them. It wasn't until Daniel was cast into the lion's den that the Lord shut the mouths of the lions. When God brings trials and testing into our lives, to the lives of his children, it's that we might come nearer to him. 
And by coming near, become more complete. The question that we must all ask ourselves is this. Do we desire permanent spiritual wholeness more than temporary physical comfort? Do we desire permanent spiritual wholeness more than temporary physical comfort? Beloved, that is a hard question. But that is what James is driving at in these few verses. Trials till the previously hard and unforgiving ground, making your heart more willing and receptive to gospel seeds. God desires that we look at trials through His eyes. Much about how we can have joy in trials is based on a change of perspective. God wants us to seek His wisdom and to desire what He desires in us. If verses 3 and 4 is why I, or why should I do this, verses 5 through 8 is how. Verses 5 through 8 shows us how we do this. So the next thing that I want to share with you is this. God gives wisdom for wholeness to those who ask in faith. Verse 5 through 8, read it with me. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who generously gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Friends, this is the practical how-to of our trials. When God deems it fit to send affliction our way, God desires that it drive you to beg Him for wisdom. God desires that it drive you to your knees to beg Him for wisdom. A question we must ask is, what is this wisdom? What is it? And how does it help us get through trials? Friends, we must know what this wisdom is. And in chapter 3, verse 13 through 18 of James, the Scripture says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Beloved, if you do not have God's wisdom, you will not have joy in trials. If you do not have God's wisdom, you will not have joy in trials. You might flex the the muscle of what I mentioned a minute ago of shoving it back in your mind. We're all pretty good at flexing that one. But friends, when the, when the trial is before our eyes and we can't ignore it, seek God's wisdom. Our problem is that the location, our problem is in the location of the wisdom that we seek. Do we seek wisdom from God or wisdom from the world? The passage goes on to say that those who desire wisdom should ask God. Because we do not serve a God that hoards his wisdom. We do not serve a God who hoards his wisdom. Dear friends, God has storehouses of wisdom at his disposal. 
And he is willing to open them wide, open those doors to care for your soul. God is not stingy with anything he possesses except for his glory. God will give you the wisdom you need to endure the trials he puts you through. But beloved, do you seek, or should we not seek, first, that we should not be rid of trials? We should not seek to be rid of trials. We should seek to persevere through them. You know the trials you face even this morning. Maybe it was on the drive here. Your kids were yelling in the back seat, or maybe you and your spouse got into an argument. I know a pastor who he could not drive to the church with his wife because Satan would use that as an opportunity to create dissension. He would argue every time with his wife on the way to church. So they had to drive separately. Whether it is a loved one who's passed away, or like I mentioned, or dealing with the worldwide problem of COVID, please, friends, do not be double-minded. Riding the waves of whatever the culture tells you or where the wisdom of the world directs you. But believe God. Believe God and ask Him for the wisdom from above that is open to reason, impartial, and sincere. Ask and it will be given you. Chapter 4, verse 2 through 3 of James tells us this. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I think among the many aspects mentioned about having godly wisdom, the most difficult one to have while going through a trial is being open to wisdom or open to reason. Isn't this difficult when you're simply convinced that whatever trial is in your life, it just needs to be removed? We say, if God would just remove this trial, I could serve him. Would you, though? If God really did remove that trial, would you serve him better? Would we serve him better if we were to remove or if he were to remove it or if we were to leave it? Ask yourselves, what reasons do I have to be in despair? It is here that we need to be careful, friends. It's here that we need to be careful. Puritan William Bridge recommended, and like the Puritan William Bridge recommended, we need to seek to avoid, avoid being introspective. When our trials rise and the oceans of our afflictions reach our necks, Bridge says, Why should I multiply thoughts without knowledge? Why should I tire out my soul with these thoughts? Am I able to add one cubit to my spiritual state? Am I, by all my thoughtfulness, able to alter my condition? In fact, does not my thoughtfulness set me at a farther distance from the mercy desired. The truth is that the only way to lose the comfort you desire is to be anxious about it. Often the only way to have an outward blessing is to be content to go without it. In the same way, the only way to have a spiritual or outward affliction removed is to be content that it should be continued if God and Christ will have it so. Friends, this is heavenly wisdom. Trusting that whatever God deems to bring into your life, He will breed contentment in the wilderness. Think of those Israelites who were in the wilderness for 40 years. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20 through 21 says, You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna, from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Beloved, wisdom from above is manna from heaven to fill our growling stomachs. 
Wisdom from above ensures that those who persevere lack nothing. Wisdom from above is like the serpent in the wilderness that was lifted up. And while we feel the poison of our trials seeping into our flesh, it urges us, endure, endure. Wisdom from above keeps our clothes from wearing out, our feet from swelling, while we are continually urged to keep walking, though we see no end to the wilderness. This is what enables Paul to endure when he writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 3-10, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. What reason do we have to be discouraged when our God desires us to have more of himself with every trial we face? God brings trials into our lives to force our hands back to the plow to keep pushing. We must also know that, that the bird's nest is often unseen until the winter comes and the leaves fall. When God exposes our sin through trials and shows us places where he seeks to do surgery on your soul and uproot sin that dwells there, despise the side effects and not the medicine itself. God the Father seeks to medicate our sinfulness with the sinless life of his beloved Son. Bridges says again, are you accused by Satan? the world, or your own conscience. He is called your advocate. Are you ignorant? He is called the prophet. Are you guilty of sin? He is called a priest and a high priest. Are you afflicted with many enemies, inward and outward? He is called a king and king of kings. Are you in dire straits or don't know your way? A fork in the road? He is called your way. Are you hungry or thirsty? He is called the bread and water of life. Are you afraid you shall fall away and be condemned at last? He is our second Adam, our representative, in whose death we died and in whose satisfaction we satisfied God's requirements. But as mentioned earlier, in this passage, there is a warning. There is a warning. The passage in verse 6 says, Let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. The scripture says that he should not suppose himself to receive anything from the Lord, he's double minded unstable. Friends, this is the man who builds his house on the sand. And when the waves come and they crash against the house, it will fall over. Because you have not, as mentioned earlier, built your house on the rock of Christ. You have not based your comforts on the one who is changeless, gracious, merciful, and steadfast in himself. You know why the scripture says that we're able to have steadfastness? It's because our Jesus has steadfastness and he will give it to those who ask him. Now 
you will be unstable, and there will be no godly steadfastness in you. So friends, with the wisdom from above, if God has counted us as righteous through the blood of his Son, let us also count our trials as joy. The third thing I would like to mention is in verse 9 through 11. It reads this way. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In the previous two sections, the the emphasis has been on God seeking to give his people new lenses to view their trials from his perspective. Friends, what we see in verse 9 through 11 is that God delights in those who boast in him. God delights in those who boast in him. Verses 9 through 11 are different from the previous two sections. Because instead of looking from God's perspective at our trials, we are now looking from God's perspective at ourselves. God changes the shade a little bit. And he says, now from looking from my perspective at your trials and how you're to respond to trials, now look at who you are. Who are you in my sight? What James is doing is showing that when you are in Christ... There is now a level playing field. God shows no partiality. Specifically, this passage is referring to those who are poor and those who are rich. When the passage passage says, the lowly brother, it's talking about literally those who are poor. Those who are poor, experiencing the trial of being in poverty. They don't have anything. And in contrast to those who are rich, And what we see is that God is looking at the rich, those who place their trust in their riches, and pressing them down. We see them being pressed downward, ultimately showing them that at the day of judgment, their riches will not prevail. This is hitting heavy on one of the main themes in the book of James, How God shows no partiality to the rich and desires for those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. It's found in James 2, verse 5. This section, 9 through 11, shows us something that God has done forever. He exalts the humble and humbles the proud. He exalts the humble and humbles the proud. Now, while this is specifically talking about literal riches, this passage obviously doesn't restrict it to that. In connection to the previous sections we just went through, and the one coming in verse 12, we won't be addressing that today, James is drawing out a contrast. The riches of the world and the riches of faith. The question at hand is this, which will remain? In the end, which will remain? Notice all the words used in the passage for those, for the one who has riches in the world. It says he will pass away. He compares them to to grass, to flowers. And flowers fall. Their beauty perishes. They fade away in the midst of their pursuits. And notice that last statement, the one I just said, in the midst of his pursuits. This is showing us another contrast. Those who pursue wisdom are rich in faith, and those who pursue worldly riches will be poor in the judgment. Ultimately, this passage is telling us not or to take our eyes off of our trials and to place our eyes on the one who exalts us through our trials. It reaches us or it teaches us, like it says in Jeremiah 9, 23-24, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, 
justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. But beware for those who seek to find riches in this world. Friends, you might find them, but you will not find Christ. What does Jesus say? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Beloved, do not seek the riches from the world because on the day that God brings affliction into your life, you will either perish while pursuing worldly lusts or you will remain because you have pursued godly wisdom. How we respond to our trials reveals where our treasure is. Friends, it is so hard to take our eyes off of ourselves because when we gaze at ourselves, through our trials, through the trials we face, and we are consumed with our own condition. We just want to be rid of it. More than pursuing the wisdom that is from above, it reveals the rotting fruit of self-love in our hearts. When we are experiencing a test and we are only willing to look at ourselves, thinking only about ourselves and our, con- our condition, it reveals self-love. Richard Sibbs in his book, The Bruise Read, says, when speaking about bruising before we converted, we also need bruising after conversion so that reeds may not know themselves, that reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. Even reeds need bruising because of the remainder of pride in our nature and to let us see that we live by mercy. Hebrews 12, 3 through 4 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Think about our Savior, what he has endured for us. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we, dis- we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we deemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Notice those terms. Despised, rejected, sorrowful, acquainted with grief. Stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded, oppressed. Friends, Jesus wore the crown of thorns that we might wear the crown of life. If our Savior was crushed for our salvation, can we not be crushed for our sanctification? This is the great call to the Christian, to trials. Beloved, be steadfast, immovable, unshakable in your devotion to Christ, so that even when the tempest rises and wounds us, we will have no need for discouragement because we know that our God is making us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When trials come and gash us, it is only that we, like Jacob, might walk with a limp 
and lean upon God for the rest of our lives. Let me read this prayer to you before we end. Who compares with you, Lord? How many times are we commanded to praise you? What breath in our lungs doesn't belong to you? Is there anything in our lives that doesn't belong to you? If we were to obey you perfectly, we would give you everything and commit ourselves fully to whatever task or trial you place before us. Yet we know our minds wander, and we are imperfect, unable to obey perfectly your word. But we ask humbly that you would help us do just that. Help us obey you perfectly. Allow allow us to rely upon your spirit, the helper, to aid us in our service to you. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your wisdom. Fill us with humility and godliness. Fill us with devotion to you into your church. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would cause in us a deep desire to glorify your name even above seeing our names lifted up. That you would so pierce and destroy the deep roots of pride in our hearts that we may no longer be able to see them. They would be a distant memory. Cast them as far as the east is from the west, Lord. Lord, we know that we have salvation in Christ, and we know that we are yours. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be steadfast, to be immovable, Lord, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.